Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Grading the Nutmeg brings you top flight historians, compelling first person stories, and new voices in Connecticut history. A donation from you will help ensure that our producers can bring you a fresh episode at no cost every two weeks. Grading the Nutmeg works with museums around the state to spotlight places that you'll want to visit, books published by Connecticut authors, new exhibit openings, and more. Use your power of giving to help us continue to offer the podcast at no charge to our listeners. In 2023, the podcast episodes were downloaded over 28,000 times. Make your monthly or one-time donation at ctexplore.org. Look for the Grading the Nutmeg link. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger sits down with acclaimed crime writer M. William Phelps to get to the bottom of a notorious early 20th century Connecticut murder story. In the 1910s, Amy Archer Gilligan operated an innovative business in Windsor, a convalescent home for the ill and elderly. Her benevolent facade, however, hid a deadly purpose, a business plan that depended on constant inmate turnover, aided by arsenic poisoning. You'll hear all about how the case was broken by a neighbor who happened to write for the Hartford Current in a story involving midnight graveyard autopsies, poison lemonade, a shady doctor, and the birth of the Connecticut State Police. And oh yeah, the story got turned into a blockbuster Broadway comedy and a 1944 movie starring Cary Grant. So I am thrilled today to have on the podcast M. William Phelps, who is the author of many, many books, podcaster, the CV goes on and on, but for my purposes today, I am zeroing in on one of his works, The Devil's Rooming House, The True Story of America's Deadliest Female Serial Killer, which if you don't know, is a Connecticut story. Thank you so much for being here, M. William Phelps. Well, thanks for having me and please call me Matthew. Will do. Uh, So I thought we'd start by, um, I'd invite you just to kind of for people who aren't familiar with the bare bones of the story, could you just kind of give us an outline of what happened here in Windsor, Connecticut in the 19-teens? Well, in about 1910, somewhere around there, a woman formerly known as Amy Dugan from Litchfield moves into town and she's married to a guy named James Archer, and later Michael Gilligan. So her name is Amy Archer Gilligan. And she moves in to the uh, a brick house, a, a fairly big brick house on Prospect Street. And it's a kind of a novel concept she has. I searched everywhere to find who was the first to do it, and I could not find anyone. But what she does is she decides to open up her house as kind of a what she called an elderly and infirm house for elderly inmates. And and so what that means in her world is that she was really creating the first convalescent home, if you will. And her concept was, you know, give me a thousand dollars and I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. And so families would bring their elderly there and drop them off and pay Amy the thousand and she would provide shelter, food, and, you know, take care of them. 
that was the concept. And she had 18 beds, uh, not necessarily 18 bedrooms, but she had 18 beds. And so she begins this and everybody's loving it. I mean, here's a businesswoman. She was known as a uh, Bible toting Amy because she would carry a Bible around town with her. And if you look at depictions of her on documentaries, some of which I've been in, I think the impression people get of her is that she was this old woman. But when she moved to Windsor, she was in her 30s. Uh, she looked hard. She looked like Ma Barker. She looked much, much older. So she opens up this home and, you know, at the time, Windsor, Connecticut, historically speaking, is a, is a thriving community, really, because the first tobacco seeds have just arrived, really, and tobacco's becoming a big thing. It, it's a community that is far enough away from Hartford, but close enough to Hartford where, you know, uh, products uh, can come in and out, et cetera. There's a trolley that runs along the line from Springfield right through Windsor up to Hartford. And it's it's kind of a suburb of Hartford that is is beginning to thrive. And so what happens is, I mean, people in the home start dying. And so that's the kind of the kernel of the story. There's so much to unpack. So one thing that becomes very clear in the book is she's she makes this contract with people, $1,000 and I take care of you for life. Some of these people are, you know, in their 80s or 90s, and especially at the time, their life expectancy is not very long. But some of the people she contracts with are nothing close, even for the time, to people who you would think are near the end of their lives. So uh, Franklin Andrews, who he's he so he becomes the victim whose murder is like sort of the first to come to life. He's the key player in this. He's the key player. I mean, he is. 61 when he dies and in very good health. You think about that business model. There's just, to me, it, it sets off such alarm bells, right? Like if you take someone, oh, she's going to take care of me for the rest of my life. I gave her a thousand dollars. He's 60. He could live to 90. Well, um, you make, you make a good point, uh, <laughs> Natalie. And the point is that she created a business model with very little turnover unless the person died. Now, $18,000 filling up the home would seem like a lot of money back then, and it was. But if everyone's living, there's no new money coming in. So Amy Archer Gilligan thus creates her own turnover. And one of the misconceptions of this case is that she started killing inmates, as she called them, for the money. But quickly, you realize that if you start looking into this case, as I did, I, I spent like six years looking into it. You realize that she, the psychology of a serial killer, which she is, hasn't changed in centuries. Uh, she enjoyed what she was doing. And she was poisoning those she wanted to kill with uh, lemonade laced with arsenic. That That was her modus operandi, if you will. The arsenic part of it is very interesting. And we can talk a bit about the ways that that poisoning is, at least for you know a doctor who's not paying very close attention, can mimic other problems. But the arsenic she is buying in massive quantities, people wouldn't purchased it and consumed it as you know like rodenticide, right? But she's buying it in massive quantities. But she's also sending the inmates at times to buy the arsenic 
themselves on errands for her. So she's having people buy the poison that she is using to kill them. Which is, you know, we could say very cruel, but she enjoyed that part of it. That was another part of the the psychological stimulation that psychopaths need. And and yes, she was buying pounds of arsenic. And and at the time, arsenic was used for killing bed bugs, killing rodents, etc. So it stands out, but it doesn't. She's also purchasing at the same time morphine pills, which you could buy over the counter then. What happens is a very interesting uh, character, I think, in this book, a real character, is a guy named Carlin Gosley, who lives in Windsor, has lived in Windsor his entire life, older guy, and he's the local kind of stringer for the Harford Current at the time. And what he would do is write stories about what's going on in Windsor obituaries, you know, town meetings, whatever's going on. And he'd hand the stories off to the uh, trolley driver and give him like four or five shad as payment. And the trolley driver would drop the stories off at the Hartford Current in Hartford. Carlin Gosley knew Amy Archer Gilligan very well. Everybody in town basically did. They liked her in town a lot. And you know, one of the reasons for that is she didn't present herself as some sort of witch or charlatan or a psychopath. You know, she presented as a really a businesswoman. But Carlin Gosley now is the stringer for the uh, newspapers in Hartford, and he's writing obituaries one after the other for the Archer home. And he's noticing that they're increasing. And so he gets the reporter, the investigating journalist bugging his back of his throat and it starts itching. So he starts to look into it. And one of the first things he does to go back to your original statement is he goes to the the pharmacist and he starts looking at records of how much arsenic she's buying, how much morphine she's buying. And he begins to question Amy on what's going on at the home. Carlin Gossi was a, he was a really standout in the community. He was into politics. He, he Everybody loved this guy as I did. And a, a, an interesting side note about that is, you know, I was five, six years into working on this book. I, w- I had a contract. I was writing the book and I didn't have anybody in the book who could solve this case. So it was going to be kind of weak in that area, but history is history. And I had been searching for ghastly family members for ages and all of a sudden, I get an email one day from a 16-year-old girl, and she says, Hi, I, I am Carlin Gosley's great-great-granddaughter. I live in Windsor, and my dad has a box of his stuff up in the attic. Do you think you'd be interested in that? And I said, uh, Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested in that stuff. <laughs> so that opened up this whole entire Carlin Gosley vein for me in this book. That's incredible. Just good luck, right? Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah. That, you must have pleased the gods somehow, the gods of yeah, research. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Uh, it, it, the other thing that I think stands out in reading reading your book is the extent to which the investigation is in the hands of the Hartford Current. Yeah. It is not like we, I think of, I mean, uh, it's, it's not where I think of, you know, um, criminal investigations beginning necessarily with newspapers. Can you talk a little bit about the why of that? That's that's an interesting part of the story. So Carlin Gosley uh, brings his concerns to the prosecutor in Hartford, 
And Carlin Gosley says, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be writing about this. I'm going to be writing uh, big stories about it. Um, and he did. And the prosecutor says, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. What I want you to do is, and he gets with the Hartford Current editors. He says, I want you to write the stories, but I want you to bank them. Meaning put them in the vault. Don't publish until I say so. And so Carlin Gosley begins working with the prosecutor's office, basically as an investigator. Now, at the same time, you have the creation of what we call the Connecticut State Police today takes place. And there's this one detective, if you will, who gets involved. And what he does is, and he's he this is how the eastern western districts of the state police are are really formed is around this case. He gets involved, he decides he's going to put an undercover officer, female officer in the home. And so she goes in the home. And meanwhile, you have a guy that you you mentioned earlier, Franklin Andrews, who is noticing the deaths that are happening in the home. And he starts writing to anybody who will listen to him, his family. He starts talking to Carlin Gosley. He starts talking to other people. Well, then Franklin Andrews winds up dead. Amy Archer Gilligan's husband, Michael Gilligan, he starts raising questions. He winds up in the ground dead. So now we have all these dead bodies. Now, this Connecticut State Police, I'll call them, they start digging up these bodies and they start doing exhumations and then forensic autopsies right there in the cemetery of where these bodies are in like tool shed. And the thing about arsenic poisoning is it's very easy to realize once you cut open the body because the one thing about arsenic poisoning the stomach will be like a balloon. And then you can do a quick, easy type of litmus test with just a piece of acid paper to test for arsenic. So they were doing this and they were finding one after the other after the other. And so Amy is found out basically. And then on the day she's arrested, remember, we have all these stories banked. The next day, I think the first five pages of the paper are full of stories about her and what's been going on in that place. And it's odd that they would do that. But at the time, uh, it was very much something reporters did. They worked with police a lot. I think I'm remembering a, a, a sort of fun detail in the book, which is that the infant uh, state police force, because of the nature of the seriousness of this case, they're actually able to get authorization to get an automobile or to use automobiles to go and pick up Amy, which is, you know, you have this image of like the Pope, they're Pope Hartford's and they're driving up from, from Hartford into Windsor. And it's this must've been a site, you know, at the time, probably not a ton of automobiles. Such an interesting detail that is historical detail, because you're right. One of the reasons a lot of the family members didn't visit their family members at the Archer home was, you know, going from Simsbury or Avon or Cheshire to uh, Windsor on a buggy and a horse, you know, that was a trip. So uh, there were buggies and horses everywhere. And then they use this motor vehicle and it's, it's really, uh, it is a spectacular sight when she's arrested. Everybody in town is there watching this. Uh, And there's Amy coming out with her Bible you know, who went and Han about, I've been set up, uh, this is ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. She has the line, something like, eventually at some point um, in her interrogation, she says, well, 
if Franklin Andrews had arsenic in him, it wasn't me who put it there. Right. Such she a, gives herself away. Yeah. Yeah. So because I, I was keeping notes as I was reading the book and the point where the undercover police agent shows up at the home. Her name is Zola Bennett. I, I put a sting question mark. This was kind of an amazing element to have in a story that's over a hundred years old. And I was also kind of, don't drink anything while you're there. Don't eat the food. What are you doing? Because she, the undercover agent is like posing as an inmate, right? And right. it seems so right. dangerous. It, it, the other part of this, uh, and Zola Bennett is just an absolutely wonderful name for an yes. undercover detective. And not only is Zola in the house, but also now Amy has her daughter, Mary, living in the house, who's like 18. And Mary is starting to sniff around and realize something's going on. So Zola kind of pressures Mary too, you know? So, and then we can't forget about the coroner in town, who is a friend of Amy's, Dr. Howard King. He's the guy who signs off on all these deaths. She would never call on him in the middle of the day. It was always in the middle of the night. Oh, I lost another one. He'd come, he'd sign off, and um, they'd take the body out of there under the cloak of darkness um, and either deliver it to the family or they'd bury it themselves. And one of the questions always has lingered in this story forever is, was Howard King part of this? Because Amy was paying him. She was paying him as her in-home doctor for the inmates while they were alive, and then paying him to sign off on the death certificate. And he was questioned during the trial and everything, and he denied it. But I'll say as a person who you know, has done these criminal cases for 25 years, I would say he was absolutely knew what was going on and just turned a blind eye to it. The book makes a point of saying that even with the state of medicine 100 years ago, which we like to think is not as advanced as our own, many of the causes of death that are recorded are, even by the standards of the time, not terribly believable. So like Franklin Andrews allegedly dies of gastric ulcers, right. which even I'm in a lay person, ulcers can be a serious issue, but to have so many people in their 50s and 60s dying of gastric ulcers would seem to be like, you, you have more than one of those happening in a decade, you've got a problem here, right? There's something going on in that house. There's something going on in the food, there's so, there's something happening that's right. it's just not a persuasive cause of death. And, and you know, at one point, at one point, you have another doctor who is sort of almost accidentally gets brought in, Doctor Emma Thompson, no relation to the actress, right? Different Emma Thompson, but she's brought in um, because she's an old one of the inmates is an old patient of hers, and she is really shy. Like she doesn't understand these symptoms, which are the same symptoms that all of these people have died of before that King has signed off on kind of without any apparent concern. Thompson is very confused. And she eventually, after thinking about it for a few days, when, when she's visited by uh, one of the reporters from The Current, she, says, she essentially says, I was just thinking about going to the police because this doesn't sit right with me. A lot of people were because- yeah. You're right. I mean, arsenic presents uh, as flu-like symptoms that are a hundred times worse than the flu, you know, but, and, and the, the other thing that I think that really stood out to Emma and others was Franklin Andrews was cutting the lawn and gardening the day before he died. So those gastric ulcers couldn't have been all that bad if he's doing labor. Um, and also there were some younger people, as you mentioned earlier in there, you know, in their forties, et cetera, 
because she would take on anybody, anybody who needed a place and could come up with the money, she'd take them in and, and they died too. So she was found out. I mean, it was, it, it became very obvious to everybody that she was killing these people and, and any amount of money she donated to the church or, or she could quote Bible passages didn't matter. It mattered before, but it didn't matter then because the evidence was just mounting. Tis the season to start thinking about holiday gifts. Lucky for you, a Connecticut Explored magazine subscription is the perfect gift that keeps on giving all year round. Right now, you can purchase your first gift subscription for $25 and get all additional gifts for just $20. Perfect for buying gift subscriptions for your entire family, friends, or coworkers. Read the magazine, discuss the fascinating stories, and then go explore the sites together. Visit ctexplore.org slash subscribe and use promo code GIFT23. That's gift two three. Happy holidays! What do comic books, Noah Webster's first dictionary, and the recipe for pumpkin pie all have in common? They're all a part of Connecticut's literary history. Now on view at the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History, Connecticut's bookshelf invites you to discover the history behind the stories. Investigate the Windsor murder spree that may have inspired the Broadway hit Arsenic and Old Lace. Marvel at the modern comic book. Try your craftsmanship at bookbinding and consider... What belongs on the shelf? And who gets to decide? Plan your visit to Connecticut's bookshelf today at ConnecticutMuseum.org. We have to circle back to that morphine. She's going to, there's two drugstores in town. She's buying arsenic. It seems like maybe the bulk of her arsenic at one, but she's also buying morphine tablets at both. And the numbers, again, I was reading the book and my husband got very annoyed at me because they kept saying, oh, you got to listen to this. And when I saw, you know, she's buying something like... Was it you know fifteen hundred tablets of morphine at a time? I don't know what the dosage was in these tablets, but I'm gonna guess you know it was a tablet would be enough to you know help with pain relief. But she's yes, she had purchased twenty thousand five hundred morphine tablets over a three year period. It's enormous, and <sighs> you know you ask the question why? Well, part right. of it was she was a morphine addict, so that's part of it. And, and that falls in line with the psychology of serial killers. A good amount of serial killers, the data shows, are addicted to alcohol, drugs, gambling, porn. So there's addiction in, in the psychology. So that, that fits into that. But she was using a lot of morphine, and she was also giving it to patients who might have started mouthing off. So if you if you if you were I mean she treated these people horribly number one she didn't feed them well there were bed bugs everywhere I mean they were horrendous conditions and when they started talking she would just dope them up before people would come so they couldn't really talk so she was using it on mul- multiple levels the morphine and the question of course is we don't know we we yeah. know about the victims who were exhumed and autopsied um, and those folks were confirmed to have arsenic in their systems. Uh, I think one had strychnine. So it seems like maybe she had tried to switch MOs a little bit there. But we don't know about, uh, I think, so remind me the the total number of inmates who died at the home. Um, Well, there's a couple of numbers. Uh, One is like 33. But then I think uh, I outline it in the back of the book where, you know, know, if if you really look at all the cases, I mean, she was killing for years and years and years. And there's a good indication she killed even before she came to Windsor uh, in Newington, uh, where she kind of got the idea for the concept of the convalescent home. 
but yeah, she, she's a typical female serial killer. Uh, she falls right in line with the psychology of the female serial so, killer. So expand on that a little bit. What distinguishes female serial killers and their psychology from male ones? Well, with female serial killers, we usually see them using fire or poison to kill. We generally don't see them strangling, stabbing. The number one weapon of choice for all serial killers is a gun. So we don't see that usually. But with female serial killers, we always see a setting where there's multiple people around. The female serial killer isn't the type to say stalk children or stalk general people in the population and and focus on them. They generally are focused on one area, hospitals, convalescent homes, schools, that sort of thing. So where there's a lot of people around and they can they can weave in and out of that. And I'll say this about the female serial killer, their their mind works on a different level than the male serial killer. So the female serial killer is much more methodical in thinking. They think about things a lot deeper and a lot longer than, say, the male psychology. But both males and females share the same, you know, glibness, charm, pathological line. They they share all those traits that are on the uh, the Robert Hare checklist. So methodical to the extent that you come up with a business plan and a business model that allows you access to people who are particularly helpless and potentially sort of gone off the grid of society where they are without loved ones to care for them or or loved ones who don't want to care for them anymore and are isolated from their social networks. 100%. Yeah. Now, me as a serial killer guy who's written, you know, seven, eight books about serial killers and really the basis of my work is centered around them. Uh, One of the questions I had was, okay, well, where does this come from, right? Where... Where is the root of the evil that got seeded in her? So now we head back to Litchfield, where she grew up. This is where, when we start to look at Litchfield, we start to look at some of the similarities now to Arsenic and Old Lace, the the Broadway play uh, movie that was based on Amy's story. There's not a lot of information about Amy in Litchfield, but one thing that is, I think, pretty damn clear to me when I look back at what little is there is that there was definitely some sort of abuse going on in the household. <laughs> and then, you know, cause she had a brother and the brother was uh, prone to playing the violin in front of the mirror and acting very strangely. That's where we get that, that crazy cousin in the, in the arsenic and old lace play who plays the trumpet. Uh, that that's where that character's based. And Amy there, there's, you know, she moves out of, she basically runs out of Litchfield. And there's a reason for it that I could never find. The, the, the evidence is just not there yet. And then no one's found that diary or that uh, the paperwork in their attic yet. So, but, but it, yeah, uh, she, she, she had a mission and she carried it out. I mean, um, was she greedy? Yeah. Greed is a motivator for a serial killer. Sure. But the number one, MO behind serial killing is for the fun of it. They do it because they like to do it. Once she started killing, she loved it. Amy Archer Gilligan. We're going to come back to that a little bit, but just to kind of, you've, you've talked about the arsenic and old lace. I mean, I say connection. It's they're one in the same story. So um, in the thirties, a play hits Broadway. It is this 
comically dark, dark comedy about two kind of lovely little maiden aunts who are running a boarding home for a boarding house for elderly gentlemen. And they are killing these gentlemen with uh, arsenic sort of out of a sense of the, you know, the pity, right. And talk a little bit more about that because I think a lot of people I'm guessing a lot more people are familiar with play and it goes on to become a Cary Grant film than, than with this really sinister origin story. One of the things I point out in the book that struck me was that here was hundreds of thousands of people who attended the, the, the play as it opened to a smash everywhere, London, New York, you know, they were laughing at murder. They were laughing at murder, the true crime. This was true crime. And so what happened with that is Joseph Kesserling, who wrote the play, he came to Windsor. He came to Hartford when Amy was arrested and he wanted to write a play based on her. And he wanted to tell her story in a play. And the prosecutor and Amy said, no way, not giving you the rights. So he left and he said, all right, I'll fictionalize it. So that's why we have two kind of sisters using elderberry wine and arsenic instead of lemonade and arsenic. And in the in the film and the Broadway play, they're putting the bodies in the cellar. They're burying the bodies in the cellar. Now, Amy never buried any bodies in the cellar. She buried them in a graveyard. This play is just, uh, I mean, I, I, people were laughing at, at murder. Now, you have to ask yourself why. One of the reasons is that I was given by experts who study this type of thing is, you know, World War II was kind of in action and going on. And there was a lot of dark stuff going on in the world. And people were looking for any opportunity to laugh. So that's one reason. But but yeah, I mean, uh, that's how the play came about. And it it's the same story. It's definitely the same story. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And uh, Amy was alive to see it uh, be a smash hit. We don't know how she reacted to it uh, because the um, mental facility that she was in refuses to give any records about her. I know there's a gentleman who's been suing that facility for, I want to say, 15 years to try to get those records about Amy. And and I just don't know. Uh, but but yeah, crazy. I mean, just crazy that art imitates life. It would be interesting to know more about Amy's very long stay. So she 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 lived a long she, time. She lives a long time. She's put on trial. And one of the things that's interesting to me about the trial is how how circumstantial the evidence is, right? So there are there are way too many deaths in her home. People are dying of arsenic poisoning. She is responsible for having arsenic purchased purchased for the home in these massive quantities. But there's no you know, there's no there's no DNA fingerprints. Nobody's witnessed her putting arsenic into food and then or lemonade and then giving it to people. So it is circumstantial evidence, although enough circumstantial evidence is, I mean, it's another word for circumstantial evidence is evidence, right? It's very much circumstantial. However, when you add the fact that both of her husbands died of arsenic poisoning, now it goes beyond circumstantial. And at the time, you didn't have a lot of trials that were forensic trials like today. I mean, you, a, a jury just needed circumstantial evidence. And one thing I'll say about the trial that is really interesting for history fans. So I go over to the Hartford Public Library, and I know they got information in there about Amy Archer Gilligan. I just know it. I can feel it. 
So I go in there and I, I, I meet a nice woman who is looking around for me, looking around for me. And she calls me one day and says, yeah, I found the transcripts to the trial, 1,200 pages. I said, awesome. So I get the transcripts from the trial, which are just opened up this whole book. Then she says, listen, there's a box down in the vault that has Amy Archer Gilligan written on it, you know, and the case number. Um, and she brings it to me and there's scrolls of paper. And around the scroll is charcoal. There's like a band of charcoal. Well, come to find out rubber bands turn into charcoal, you know, as they age. This tells me something though. No one's ever looked at them or those seals would be broken. So they were put in there right afterwards and no one's seen them. So those scrolls offered me a tremendous amount of insight more that had never been told into the legal proceeding because Amy loses this first trial and she's sentenced to death and she's sent to Weathersfield State Prison, which is today, you know, which is kind of apropos, is the Department of Motor Vehicles, <laughs> right? So um, she's sent there and they are ready to hang her. And what she does is, and I don't know how she got away with this, but what she does is she starts faking mental in you know, competence where uh, someone keeps calling and calling and calling out her and she's talking to people who aren't there and all this. So she's brought back into court. She's found incompetent, mental, uh, you know, incompetence. And then she's sent to the psychiatric hospital in Middletown where she lives till, we don't really know exactly when she was born, but the age is about 90 years old that she lived to. She, she outlives everybody in this case, everybody. Right. I mean, she passed away in the 60s. In the 60s. Right, which is incredible. It's incredible. Um, it's bizarre and it's incredible. Yeah. I, and and her daughter, you know, you what happens is you lose track of her daughter, Mary, because Mary now, we, we would think, lived till maybe the 80s, right? So Mary would be a great source of information. And, and I, I have to assume Mary wrote a lot of stuff down uh, because she lived through this, talked to people about it. Mary goes down Southern Connecticut near Darien, you know, that area, Westport. And she ends up ironically in a convalescent hometown there, Mary. There's no trace of her afterwards. There's it's just, there's no trace of her. One of the things that makes this case interesting for Connecticut history buffs, especially is, you know, it, it's happening right at the formation. It's, it's just at this sort of juncture, right? It's happening right at the formation of the state police you know, just at the beginning of the movement to have convalescent homes or retirement homes, right? But this, it does have an impact on state regulation. In other words, state regulation of nursing homes or convalescent homes is created in the wake of this case. Absolutely. And and that's maybe the silver lining, if there can be one in this. I, we're going to wrap up, but I just, a question for you, if this is not just about, about Amy's case, but why are we so fascinated with these stories? The public has a hunger to hear about this and to learn about this. What is it that draws us to stories like this? I think that is the question everybody's asking now because it's so popular. And, you know, I really don't have a stock answer for that. The, the only thing I can say about that is murder is the ultimate crime. You know, it's the ultimate, ultimate crime. And I, I think one of the reasons why we're listening to these in such record numbers now is that we we all love a mystery. I mean, I wrote an article for uh, dating myself, AARP, uh, uh, about this. 
And, you know, it, for me, uh, I think for a lot of people, it goes back to Scooby-Doo. Uh, <laughs> Scooby-Doo. To Columbo. For me, it's Columbo. You know, right. with with the show Columbo, within a couple minutes, you know who the killer is. But you're hanging on for two hours of that show to see how Columbo catches that person. So we love the idea of the mystery and solving a mystery. And when it's real, it kicks it up a notch. We say record numbers, but a majority of those are female. Women are the ones who are watching these stories and listening to the podcast in big numbers. That is fascinating to me. Um, as I know I have a lot of friends who love true crime and they love stories like this. That would be a whole other episode sure. of a podcast to like try to unravel the whys. I'm sure there are people who have written about it. You know, when I read that story, I read your book, I put myself in the shoes of Amy's borders and her victims. I put myself in the shoes of her daughter. I put myself in the shoes of Carlin Gosley and thought, what would I do in that situation? Would I see the clues? Would I make the connections? Would I be, we all like to think we're the one who would know something was up and, you know, and we wouldn't be, we'd just be like the people back then who were, you know, slowly coming to figure, figure it out. Um, but we all like to think we're the Sherlock who like you put us back there and we'd figure it out right away. You nailed it. That's what, the data shows, the research shows that females are in it for, you really? know? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. You, know, you blame Scooby-Doo. I would go with Nancy Drew. It's unlocking our Hardy our boys. Nancy Drew. Hardy boys, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we love to solve a mystery. Yeah. Really, yeah. as a human being, we love to solve mysteries. Yeah. We do it all day long. I'll end on this. I don't watch or listen to any of it. Really? It feels like work to you? Yeah. I mean, I do it all day long. You know, I interview people, I write about it all day long. It's like, yeah, I don't want to go to bed watching it. Um, so I watch calmer stuff. I watch, I watch a cozier stuff. Um, my own comfort TV. I think you're allowed. I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been delightful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really my great. pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want more historical true crime content, check out the latest exhibition at the Connecticut Museum of Culture and History called Connecticut's Bookshelf. The exhibit covers 300 years of reading, writing, and publishing in our state. A true crime section in the exhibit features stories that document Connecticut's century-old fascination with criminal mayhem. Go to ConnecticutMuseum.org for details. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.